welcome again to another Invested Investor. Today we have David Gammon, who I've known for about six or seven years and co-invested with several times and learned a huge amount from. So first of all, David, can you talk a bit about your background and how you got into angel investing? Sure. Thanks, Peter. And thank you very much for inviting me to come and take part in this wonderful podcast series. You're doing very important good work. Thank you. Thank you. My first job was that I began my career working for my family construction company in Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates in 1981. I don't have a degree. I have an HND in business management, which I took from Oxford Polytechnic. And I have to say that I have used the practical things I learned in that course every week of my working life. How to look at an article of association, how to read accounts and all that kind of stuff. So when I went to Sharjah, I was put in the accounts department and I really learned the difference between the three main corporate statements, which are the profit and loss account, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement, and how they interacted and interrelated. And I was very lucky to get this knowledge, as it's really been the foundation of my business knowledge and the basis upon which I make all my analysis. In 1982, I returned to the UK and I worked as a financial analyst for a business expansion scheme fund. You were in the early 20s there, were you? I was in my early 20s, exactly. 21 to be exact. So this introduced me to spreadsheets, um, how to construct them and how to manipulate them. Because what I did is that I would get a business proposal for someone and then I would try and reconstruct their spreadsheet from a printout. And this taught me how assumptions in spreadsheets are extremely important. And getting a balance sheet to balance from a profit and loss account is actually extremely difficult. And usually you can completely destroy someone's P&L account by looking at their balance sheet, which is a useful little thing. A year later in 1983, I decided to start my own fund management business and I became a licensed dealer in securities. That sort of sounds slightly precocious and very driven. Absolutely, I've always been very ambitious. And I wanted to make a mark and I wanted to run my own business. I come from a family of entrepreneurs. My father started his own company that became a global construction company. My uncle was the founder of Rio Tinto's Inc. He bought the mine from General Franco shortly after the Second World War and turned a one mine venture in the south of Spain into the world's largest mining company. And my other uncle came from the Johnny Walker whiskey family. So. If you like, I've been surrounded by entrepreneurs all my life. So uh, my brother and sister run their own businesses. It's very natural. It's Mm. what I always wanted to do. Mm. So I started my own business basically in fund management that I knew very little about. And the way I began this is by asking my family members, which is like many businesses and entrepreneurs I meet today, is just asking family and friends for support. And I was very lucky that they supported me. And I decided to invest this money into emerging European markets, Spain, France, and Italy. I chose those markets because they were really nice places to visit. (laughs) I spoke a little bit of the language. And despite having no knowledge whatsoever of public stocks and shares, really, they were using an open outcry Napoleonic system of making prices. And I found this very theatrical and very amusing. I did this reasonably successfully. I was very lucky with my timing. And in 1985, Bearings headhunted me to join their startup European securities business. 
and I was the second recruit in Bering Securities Europe. And I moved from the buy side, where I've been managing money, to the sell side, where I was broking. I then went from Bearings to Salomon Brothers, Salomon's to Robert Fleming, and I ended my investment banking career in 2001 in Credit Lyonnais in a senior management position. And during that time, you'd lived in Madrid, I think, for some time, hadn't you? I spent six years in Madrid. My thirst for starting business and being an entrepreneur is demonstrated because when I joined Robert Fleming, I joined them on the basis that I wrote a business plan to develop their continental European business from the continent of Europe. And I was asked where I would like to go and set it up. And I said, Madrid. And so I got on a plane, went to Madrid with a cheque, a two million pound cheque to start the company in the early 1990s. I had no employees, no office, nothing. And uh, I set the whole thing up. And we ended up with around 40 people in Robert Fleming, Spain in 1998. And we were one of the larger foreign brokers operating in Spain. We did privatizations of banks. We did some large deals. But the thing that was really different, I suppose, was that it was my idea that you could sell stocks and funds to the same customers using the same people. Historically, a fund would be sold by a completely different firm and a stock would be sold by a stockbroker. And in Europe, I put the two together. And this, for a while, became very successful. Robert Fleming was acquired by Chase and then J.P. Morgan in 1999. And I left the firm just before that happened. So if we go to the modern time, in 2001, I started Rockspring. I left the city really very happy. I'd learned so much there about people, about finance, and decided that uh, in 2000, 2001, all the rage was technology. And despite knowing absolutely nothing about technology, I decided this was the place where I wanted to exercise my peculiar financial analysis. And I and my wife, with my three children, we set up Rockspring with um, £16,500 of equity. <laughs> and we built it from there. We've now done 34 startups and we've had some successes and we've had some learning lessons. <laughs> yes, we'll come to those later. So this was in 2001, so that's 17 years ago. Why did you go into angel investing, Why, or family office almost? What, what triggered that change? Wanting to actually do something more useful than just advising institutions. I saw a lot of similarity between the problems that public listed companies have that are micro and small cap and actually startups. It's all about getting the right team together, having the right people on your board, having good shareholders that actually buy into your vision and having a message that people can understand. And you will notice in all that, I have not mentioned once the product or the technology, because that is not me. That's not what I can add anything to. I look for other people to help me like you, <laughs> you people who know a lot about technology. Well, it's the people that matter to me. Again, I was too enamoured by tech in my early days of investing. And nowadays, it's the people that have to enamour me, not the tech. Yes. It's really the people, isn't it, that really make the difference at the end of the day. If you back the wrong person, it doesn't matter how good the technology is, it's just not going to happen. And I also think you have to be very careful with your shareholder construct from the first day. Mm. 
A lot of people don't pay any attention to this, but actually if you get disruptive shareholders, people who don't support or people that don't contribute or people that over-contribute, it's as bad to find someone who's interfering in a negative way, continually trying to give advice, even though they're well-intentioned, than it is to find someone who gives absolutely nothing but a check. Because get something off the ground and started is a lot of hard work. Yes. Advice to the entrepreneur. How does an entrepreneur know which people? If you've got somebody like you pledged the money already, you would have views on who should come in and out. But if you take an entrepreneur that hasn't yet found somebody like you, how does the entrepreneur choose which money is going to be positive, which might be negative? It's all about the lead. You have to find the right lead investor. And this is true of every round that a company ever does all the way through to IPO and beyond. The lead is really the key. If you have a good, sensible lead investor, they have a network and they'll do that work for you. So don't expect the entrepreneur to be able to do it. I wouldn't think that would be fair because a lot of these people are straight out of university. Mm. However, if you choose an experienced lead investor, and that's what takes the time in so many deals, is finding the right lead, then That is magic. Mm. That makes it work. Yeah. So, David, you've done 34 deals over the last 16 or 17 years. Now, you cannot tell me all those have been successful. (laughs) So let's just talk about ones that have gone wrong. So what have you learned about various journeys, less successful ones first and then the successful ones? So I think I have had my fair share of ones that I call lessons. And most of the companies that didn't succeed so well were my earlier investments. I found it easier to avoid them the more mature I've become. And therefore, in the first few years, I was perhaps a bit more enthusiastic with the idea and less aware of the people side of it. So I think that probably the failure that most people would associate with me immediately is Library House. Library House had a wonderful concept, a really, really good idea. We were trying to do two things. Firstly, is create a community in Cambridge where angels could come and meet and talk to other professionals, other angels, and other institutional investors perhaps interested in investing alongside and creating a kind of community, a hub. And the other side was gathering data on companies in the angel sector, because the thing about angel investing is very untransparent. So getting information, consistent information about the company is very, very hard to do. So what I didn't realize is that these two aspects of the business just didn't gel together sufficiently well. It's very difficult and expensive to gather all the data, whereas the events run by the remarkable Mark Littlewood. Uh, what a success he is. Fantastic. The Cambridge one, not the, the London Cambridge one. one. Yeah. There's another one in London, yes. That's right, the Cambridge well known. one. Yeah. You know, he was magic, and the whole thing, the, the whole place was buzzing. Mm. And it worked on that side, but on the other side, the data side, it didn't work. And in fact, one really conflicted with the other in some ways. And so unfortunately, the business model just wasn't sustainable. And I think that the thing about the ones that have failed, like Library House, and there have been others, is that the business model just couldn't be put together to make it work. The other area where I've had business failures is when there have been conflicts with shareholders. And it's hard for me to give you specific cases here and to name them. 
but there are two or three companies that I've been involved with that have not been resounding successes, where different shareholders have had different visions and different plans for the company from the very offset. But because they didn't come out and you didn't know it, you discovered it as the journey went along, then these conflicts became more and more important. And the poor entrepreneur founder would spend more time managing shareholder relationships than managing customers or managing the board and the shareholders rather than the customers. And the whole emphasis for the founder then moves away from running a proper commercial enterprise towards managing people which are non-productive to the business. So I go back and say that having a common vision, having a really good lead shareholder who can actually bring it all together, if they are a good lead, they will protect the founder, allow the founder to run the business instead of really having the whole burden upon their own shoulders. Would it be fair to say that these conflicts appear more later on in, in terms of the amount of money raised, i.e. when you're getting out of angel territory into fund or VC territory? No, I've actually shockingly found it across the board. Right. I think some people are very well intentioned, but for whatever reason, they become, I think the word I would say is over-involved. And if you have three or four angel investors who are over-involved and in conflict, it's a disaster. Right. So it's not just the VCs who, of course, have a different modus operandi in that they're managing somebody else's money. Yes. Not their own money. It's also within angels as well. Absolutely. And I would emphasize that. Of course, VCs have a very different business model to angels. So what VCs have to do is invest as much as they can, as cheaply as they can. And remember that they are buying once we angels have already invested for a few years. Mm. So our business is to try and sell as much as we can, as expensively as we can. But actually, a lot of VCs from the early noughties have really learned this lesson and are beginning much closer collaboration. I'm very hopeful. In the early 2000s, I found it very difficult to find like-minded VCs. But today in Cambridge, we actually have some VCs who are really high quality. They know what they're doing. We have very close relationships with them. We can have a sensible discussion with them. They want to build the business. We want to build the business. And that must be true in London as well. There must be VCs that you happily co-invest with. For sure. But I haven't really co-invested with many London VCs. Right. I think it's because the investments I make tend to be hardcore technology. And that's not been a sector that's been to date. I know it's changing now, but up till now, it's not been really very interesting. So if you take DeepMind, for example, there were only a few individuals in the UK that invested in DeepMind, despite showing it to many people. They just didn't think that it was possible to do what Demis said was possible to do. Whereas I really did believe him. And had good reason to. And a very good results, as we know. And one of the best results, yeah. <laughs> one of the best. <laughs> Can we just go back to business models? The reason that most, or many, not most, but certainly three quarters of journeys and entrepreneurial journeys fail is due to either lack of money for investors or not getting to the point of break even. Of course, during that journey, if that's not working and the money's less easily available, entrepreneurs will pivot. You mentioned Library House, the business model failed. Did they try or did you try to pivot on that route? Yes, I think they did. But 
I think it was too late. The realization was too late. It was just as simple as that. And I think that the temptation to say, well, we'll give it another year, we'll give it another two years, give it another three years, all that means is that angels are writing out more checks to reinforce a negative they already know is true. Mm. So I tend to call for early action, which may give me a, you know, a reputation for being aggressive. But actually, if something is failing, I'd rather just move on than just stick with it and then resolutely say, we'll make it work. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And patience has its qualities, I completely agree. But once something really is proven that it just doesn't seem to be the right timing or the market isn't ready or you've got to pivot, delay is very expensive. But of course, there may be a conflict there between the investors and the entrepreneur about the necessity of the timing and the direction and the angle of pivot that's required. How do you cope with that? Well, I think one has to actually have a very blunt conversation with the entrepreneur and sometimes it's better for them to move out of the way. So this may sound shocking to some people listening to this, but if you look at Google, for example, you know, Larry Page and Sergey Brin actually got out of the way and allowed Eric Schmidt to come in and actually really run the business. It wasn't that the other two were not capable and able to run the business. It's just that their model didn't really work. And in the early days of Google, they really didn't have a proper monetization model. And the monetization came when they realized the value of the data. It's now also obvious. But in the early noughties, late 1990s, it wasn't so obvious. And really, Google's success was down to the bravery of the two founders to actually allow this transition to take place. And I think that sometimes, particularly if an entrepreneur has not run a company before, it can be quite wise to say, OK, I've tried to go down this route. It's not worked. Therefore, perhaps I can learn something from a new CEO and actually take a sidestep, not forever, mm. but for two or three years to allow someone else to show them or at least help them get to where they want to go. And this is an extremely tricky conversation to have with someone because they think they failed, which they haven't. It's just that's the way it's been. And I think that that is one of the things I would say to entrepreneurs is really, really important is that don't think that having a new CEO just coming in and helping you to learn from them is failure. It'll make you a better entrepreneur. Exactly. When I'm deal leading or sitting on boards, I do sort of warn founders, CEOs, that they may not be the CEO on exits of the business. And the, the only way they can do that is to grow at least as fast as the business grows in terms of their own ability. You don't happen to know whether Larry and Serge actually volunteered to bring Eric in or whether it was shareholder pressure that did that. I don't know. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was a combination of both. But they were definitely enlightened. Oh, they've learned a huge amount. And as we know, Eric stepped down in the last year or so. So it was many years, wasn't it? It must have been 10 plus years that he was Oh, yeah, at least. But it's a really good example because it really does show what a difference it can make to brilliant people. I mean, Larry and Sergey are geniuses, right? I've no clue. I've never met them, but you probably have. We've, we heard earlier that you met Elon Musk, so I suspect you're mixing different circles with me. We talked about, but not in detail, some failures. DeepMind was a wonderful success for you and Rockspring. Can you talk about one or two other successes and why you think they've been successful? So I think a company that I would say has been an outstanding success is Frontier Developments. 
I joined the company as a private company. And what Frontier had done to that time was develop video games on PC and consoles for third parties. They were a third party developer. So a customer such as Microsoft, for example, would come along and say, would you make a game for us? Then it would be costed by Frontier and they would add a margin and that would be the price. So this model is very good. It's safe and it's secure, but it doesn't maximize your revenue potential from your own creativity. And David Braben, who is the founder of... Who we're intending to interview before long. Fabulous. He will either collaborate or not, (laughs) what I'm about to say. It's that we decided that it would be a good idea to change the business model and to actually publish our own games. So to actually own the IP in the game and to publish it ourselves. This is a huge pivot. It's a full pivot from a B to B business to a B to C business. And that we knew was going to take funding. And fraught with risk. And it is fraught with risk. We made a plan. We decided to IPO on AIM and we raised the money from some very enlightened public market investors. And there are some truly fantastic British institutions out there who are working on AIM, who are willing to take the risk and support our companies. So about two years after I joined the board as chairman, I'd also taken a position. I bought shares in the company. We floated. Around about a pound or so, wasn't it? A one pound 30, if I remember rightly. And now the share price is uh, 14 pounds. So over a period of four years, we've grown the business, we've proven the model. We're about to launch our third franchise in the summer of 2018, which is based on Jurassic World, calling Jurassic World Evolution. It's going to be very exciting. And that follows Elite Dangerous that came three years ago Mm. and Planet Coaster that came out last year. And it should be pointed out that actually, David, who I'd known before it floated and I was an investor early on, had been running the business for many years before you got involved. He'd been running the business for a long, long time, since 1988, I think. So David basically has spent his whole career running Frontier Developments and has been a phenomenal success. He's another true genius. Yes, and he's also angel investing, which we'll come to when we interview him. Absolutely. So I think you mentioned earlier you've got one specifically important tip for angels. Collaborate. I've been very blessed that I've been able to collaborate with a lot of like-minded angels. I'm not a technologist. I don't have any knowledge of technology. I don't have the academic background. I didn't take any A-levels. Well, I failed the three A-levels I took. Let me put, I got UFO grades. (laughs) Unidentified flying object. Exactly. That's how you remember this. That's how a high flyer. (laughs) (laughs) And so I didn't qualify to go and get a degree anywhere. So I missed out on all that learning and training and teaching. I'm sad to say, not the best route. But it forced me to collaborate because I need someone to be able to tell me whether the technology is possible, viable, whether it could possibly work. And the only way to do that is to work with other people who have got that background, who are academic, and who can do all that. So I rely completely on teamwork. I don't make angel investments on my own. I only work with other people. I work with leads I trust, or I lead myself and bring in people that I trust. And the collaboration as an angel is the most important activity. And to go one step further, 
Rockspring is a family company. So every investment, the founders of the business come and present to my wife and children before any investment is made. And we make a collective decision. And they have saved me for some bad ones. They have told me not to invest in some that turned out to be great successes. <laughs> no shame in that. And we've invested in some very good stuff. Without them, it wouldn't have been possible. The other thing is, it's jolly good fun investing with your family. After all, the money that I have is really belonging to my children. And what they do with it is their decision. But whilst I can, I want them to be involved in the decisions that are made with regard to what effectively will come through to them. And I would urge anyone out there with a family, if you want to do angel investment, get around the table together, get people to come and present, have a lot of fun. As I said, we started Rockspring with 16 and a half thousand pounds. If you've just got a thousand pounds, you want to make one investment, do it with your family and do it together. It brings a lot of joy and it's it's fantastic. And as you pointed out earlier, you're the youngest of your three boys was only eight when he joined this community of investments. Absolutely, he did. It's the amount he's learned from that. Absolutely. I learned a lot because the kind of questions that Cameron would ask would include things like, is this dangerous to use? You know, that's not the sort of question an adult actually gets around to asking an entrepreneur. But actually, it's very relevant because a lot of stuff is quite dangerous or could be dangerous. So I'm very grateful that, you know, they don't hold back. They come out with these questions and they're really very good questions. I learned a lot from them and I continue to do so. And we continue to act exactly in this way today. So I don't make any investments without the investment committee sitting down. And my wife, Sarah, brings a completely different aspect to the whole thing. She is fantastic. Her background is? She established her own company on leaving university. She got a degree in business management and she started her own company in early 1980s, putting on art exhibitions in company offices. It was extremely successful. On Cameron's birth, actually, she stopped running the business, but she did exhibitions all over city companies everywhere. And she's really got a first rate commercial brain. Not only that, but brings a different perspective yeah, to the three boys yeah. and myself. And it's extremely important to have this teamwork. Good. Very grateful to her. So, David, thanks very much for that tip for the angels. What about for entrepreneurs? What tip or tips have you got for them? I think the thing that I find most difficult with entrepreneurs, if I'm going to invest or listen to them, is secrecy. It's no point having a business plan and trying to raise money if you decide that actually you can't reveal how the technology works, for example. You can't persuade me to write out a cheque of any amount without being able to explain to someone who is more intelligent academically than me how this is going to work. What is it going to do? And who or what problem are you trying to address? Who are you addressing this to? It's really absolutely fundamental. And I have found that some people are very reticent to share this information. They say it's a trade secret. Or, even worse, I might have to sign an NDA. If I hear the word NDA, I know I'm not going to make the investment because I could not sign hundreds of NDAs every single year and then police them. I mean, I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, <laughs> let alone what someone told me a year ago, two years ago or five years ago. 
So I would say, please don't be secretive. If you are secretive and you don't want to reveal it, then don't raise any money from people because it's just not wise. Yeah, there's just one exception to that, actually, I believe, is that if there's some intellectual property that hasn't yet been filed as a patent, if it's already been filed, that's fine. If it hasn't been, there is a case then to sign a short-term NDA while it's filed because otherwise there's a possibility of that defensibility being challenged. I'd agree that is wise, Peter. But I only do that once or so a year, so, yeah. I would agree with that completely. But I do say, though, that software for example, you have no excuse because you can't patent software. You've got to be able to explain what your software does, how it works, where it's going to be addressed and what's unique about it. Yes. If you can't do that, it's not going to work. And you're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah, the, I mean, there is talk for some people can patent software in the States. But uh, So while we wind down, there are two things I want to ask you. One, we've had some interesting conversations over lunch over the years about your philosophical views of life. <laughs> Do you want to just explain a little bit to the listeners about, there's a level of depth about you that I really love when we get into those conversations. So I think you might be referring to the fact that since a young boy, I've been thinking about what thought is. I was intrigued when I was little. It just didn't seem possible to me that thought came from the brain, this kind of substance that is in one's head. And I remember during one history lesson that a teacher told me that originally people thought that their thinking resided in their stomachs or in their intestines, because if you were hungry, it overwhelmed you with everything else. And this kind of opened up a way of thinking. And the other great love of my life are numbers. I believe numbers have characters. I think we can learn an awful lot from them in terms of the way we live, what this is all about, the universe just by thinking about the characteristics of numbers. I want to give you an example, just one very quick example, is that you can look at life as an individual thing, saying that I've got a life, I'm David and you're Peter, etc. Or you can actually look at life collectively. But I find it very hard to think about what is all life. However, if you think about numbers, each number is from one to infinity or zero to minus infinity, there is the collection of known numbers. That whole thing together is the universe of numbers. And then I can kind of understand the universe of life because I can see a connection. So that's the kind of thinking that I like doing. And I've been very lucky in my life that I've met a lot of people who like engaging in these kind of conversations. And for example, if I talk to Demis, who is the founder of DeepMind, you know, I found this whole idea of where does thinking come from? Can we put it into a machine? Well, that would be really interesting if we could put it into a machine. So I couldn't help myself. I would have to back Demis either way. And of course, the machine is only as good as the thinking that's gone into it. So the answer is the machine doesn't think for itself. And so far, we've not been able to put thought into a machine. Well, so far, exactly, yes. But I mean, Demis's premise for a deep mind is artificial general intelligence, isn't it? Yes. Or AGI, which is moving towards where it's replicating some minor elements so far of the brain, the brain thinking. Yes, but remember, and this is, the, this is the key thing, the brain is made out of atoms. It's a material structure. A chip or DRAM or memory is made out of atoms. They are made out of metal 
and our brain is made out of organic matter, but actually they're made out of atoms and they're one and the same thing. Mm. I don't think you can put thought into atomic structures. That means not just machines, but also organic matter like a brain. Right. That's the difference. So the then thing is, where does thought come from? What is thought and what is it consistent of? And then we have more than we, we have, have time exactly, to then discuss. we have another hour to discuss. But, it, but maths helps me understand right. that more. It's a clue. If you like, if you think about the maths, it can give you clues as to what is going on. And it's no kind of fluke to me that binary code is what we use to communicate with machines. One and zero. That's what it is. All software mm. is one and zero. It's nothing else. Those are two numbers. So the final question, of course, David, which I ask everybody is, you're five or so years younger than me. What are you going to be doing in five or 10 years time? Much of the same or are you going to change? I'm going to change. Firstly, I have a desire to share more of what I've learned. And I'm probably going to use the medium of books to do that. So I have a plan to write some books, books about angel investing, I've actually invented about 12 business plans that I thought it would be fun to run and kind of make a series of books out of what happens to these businesses based on successes and disasters. And the other one is really to further this theme about numbers. So I'm very keen. I'm going to write a book about that because I've got a lot to say on the subject. Definitely. Maybe no one will read them. <laughs> uh, I hope they will. So thank you very much, David. I've learned even more. Every time I meet you, I learn things about angel investing, about people, etc. And I've, again, in, on this podcast, I've learned a tremendous amount more. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Peter. And I wish this project all success. Well done for doing it. It's wonderful work. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Investor Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investorinvestor.com, or via a number of online podcast platforms. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content. <laughs>